So I showed it to the doctor, and well, she said it's smashing. This episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're starting our new season with the future of CSS. What new specs will be landing in browsers soon? We talked to expert Miriam Suzanne to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes brand new articles to the website throughout your working week? There's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In the first of a new series, Web Design Done Well, Frederick O'Brien takes a look at the ordinary made extraordinary. Sometimes it's the little things in web life that make us look twice. From carousels to documentation to cookie disclaimers, Frederick shows us some of the sites taking the mundane and sprinkling in a little magic. Very pertinent to this episode of the podcast is Stephanie Eccles' article, A Guide to Newly Supported Modern CSS Pseudo Class Selectors. The CSS Working Group Editor's draft for Selectors Level 4 includes several pseudo-class selectors that already have proposal candidates in most modern browsers. This guide covers ones that currently have the best support, along with examples to demonstrate how you can start using them today. In How to Bake Layers of Accessibility Testing into Your Process, Kate Kalsevich and Mike Gifford introduce readers to layered accessibility testing, a practice of using a variety of tools and approaches at different stages in the digital product lifecycle to catch accessibility issues early when it's easier and cheaper to fix them. Adrian Becky looks at understanding easing functions for CSS animations and transitions. Easing functions can change the look and feel of an animation by affecting the rate or speed of an animation. As human beings, we're accustomed to natural non-linear motion. Those custom easing functions in animations can lead to a more delightful user experience. In this article, Adrian takes a deep dive into easing functions to see how we can use them to create natural and stunning animations. And in an excerpt from his new book on image optimization, Adi Osmani looks at the humble image element and core web vitals. Images have long been a key part of the web. They communicate ideas instantly, but they're also a lot heavier than text to load. This means it's essential to get loading and displaying them right if you want to give your users a fantastic first impression. Addy shares some great tips on how to measure and optimise the performance of our images. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's an artist, activist, teacher, and web developer. She's a co-founder of Oddbird, a provider of custom web applications, developer tools, and training. She's also an invited expert to the CSS Working Group and a regular public speaker and author, sharing her expertise with audiences around the world. So we know she knows CSS both backwards and forwards, but did you know she once won an egg and spoon race by taking advantage of a loophole involving macaroni? My smashing friends, please welcome Miriam Suzanne. Hi, Miriam. How are you? I'm smashing. Thank you. That's good to hear. So uh, I wanted to talk to you today about some of the exciting new stuff that's coming our way in CSS. I mean, it feels like there, there's been a sort of bit of an acceleration over the last five years of new features making their way into CSS and a much more open and collaborative approach from the W3C with some real independent specialists like yourself 
uh, Rachel Andrew, Leah Veru and others contributing to the working group as invited experts. Um, does it feel like CSS is moving forward rapidly or does it still feel horribly slow from the inside? Oh, it's um, it's both. I think uh, it is moving quite fast and quite fast is still sometimes very slow uh, because there's just so many considerations uh, and it's hard to it's hard to really land something everywhere very quickly. It, it must feel like there's an awful lot of work happening on all sorts of different things and each of them edging forward very, very slowly. But when you look at the cumulative effect, there's quite a lot going on. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like I don't know what kicked off that uh, change several years ago, whether it was, um, you know, Grid and Flexbox really sort of kicked up interest in what CSS could be, I think. Um, and there's just been so much happening. But it's interesting, you know, watching all the discussions and watching the specs, they all refer to each other. They all, CSS is very tied together. Um, you can't add one feature without impacting every other feature. And so all of these conversations have to keep in mind all of the other conversations that are happening. Uh, and it's really... Uh, it's really a web to try to to try to understand how everything impacts everything else. It feels like um, the the working group uh, very much always looking at what current practice is and seeing what sort of holes people are trying to patch, what problems they're trying to fix, often with JavaScript uh, and making a big big messy ball of JavaScript. Mm -hmm. um, is that something that's a conscious effort, or is it just does it just naturally occur? I, I would say it's very conscious. Um, and there's also a conscious attempt to then step back from the ideas and say, okay, um, this is how we've solved them in JavaScript or using hacks, workarounds, uh, whatever. Uh, and we could just pave that cow path, um, but maybe there's a better way to solve it once it's native to CSS. Uh, and so you see changes to things like variables um, when they move from preprocessors like SAS and LESS to CSS uh, they they become something new, um, and that's not always the case. Sometimes the the transition is pretty seamless. It's more just take what's already been designed and make it native. Um, but there's a conscious effort to think through that and consider the implications. Yeah, sometimes a a, a small sort of workaround is hiding quite a big idea um, that uh, could be more useful in itself. And uh, often. Uh, hiding overlapped ideas. Uh, so you get, I was just reading through a lot of the issues around grid today um, because I've been working on responsive components, uh, things like that. And I was like, okay, well, it's, what's happening in the grid space with this? Um, and there's so many proposals that sort of mix and overlap uh, in really interesting ways. And it can be hard to separate them out and say, okay, what if, should we solve these problems individually or do we solve them as sort of grouped use cases or how exactly should that be approached? And I guess that can be, from the outside, that, that might see like a, a frustrating lack of, of progress when you say, why, what, you know, why can't this feature be implemented? Um, it's because when you look at that feature, it, it explodes <laughs> into something much bigger <laughs> that's much harder to solve. But exactly. So hopefully it's uh, solving the, the bigger problem makes all sorts of other things possible. Um, I've spent a, a lot of my career in a position where we were just sort of clamoring for something, anything new to be added to CSS. I'm sure <laughs> that's familiar to you as well. Um, 
it now seems like it's almost hard to keep track of everything that's new um, yeah. because there's new things coming out all the time. Do you have any advice for sort of working front-enders of uh, how they can keep track of all the new arrivals in CSS? Are there good resources or things they should be uh, paying attention to? Yeah, there are there are great resources if you really want it curated, uh, a sense of um, what you should be watching. Um, but that's, you know, Smashing Magazine, CSS Tricks, uh, all of the common blogs, um, and then various people on Twitter, um, browser implementers, as well as people in the working group, as well as people that write articles. Uh, Stephanie Eccles comes to mind, Modern CSS. Um, so there's a lot of resources like that. I would also say uh, if you keep an eye on the release notes from different browsers, um, they don't come out that often. It's not going to spam your inbox every day. Uh, and you'll often see a section in the release notes on what have they released related to CSS. Uh, and usually in terms of new features, it's just one or two things. You're not going to become totally overwhelmed by all of the new uh new things landing. They'll come out, I don't know, six weeks to uh, to a couple months. Um, and you can just keep an eye on uh, what's landing in the browsers. Yeah, interesting point. I hadn't thought of uh, looking at browser release notes to find this stuff. I, I Personally, I make efforts to sort of follow people on Twitter who I know would share things, but I find I just miss things on Twitter <laughs> all the time. Yeah, There's lots of, lots of cool stuff that I never, never get to see. Um, in in the in that sort of spirit, before we look too far into the future, um, into what's sort of under development at the moment, there are quite a few bits of CSS that have already landed in browsers that might be new to people that, um, and they might be you know pretty usable under a lot of circumstances. Um, there are certainly uh, things that uh, I've been unaware of. Uh, one area that comes to mind is selectors. Uh, there's this uh, this is uh, pseudo class function. Uh, for example, what what does is that like a jQuery is selector? If you remember those, I, <laughs> I only know. barely remember those. <laughs> I didn't use jQuery enough to enough to say. No, I found that's even saying that it's so dusty in my mind. I'm not even sure that, that was a thing. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, is and where uh, it's useful to think of them together. Um, both of those selectors. Um, is sort of landed uh, in most browsers a, a little bit before where, but at this point, I think both are pretty well supported in modern browsers. Um, and they let you list a number of uh, selectors inside of a single pseudo class selector. Um, so you say colon is or colon where, and then in parentheses, you can put any selectors you want. Um, and it matches an element that also matches the selectors inside. Um, one example is you can say, uh, I want to style all of the links inside of any heading. Um, so you could say is h1, h2, h3, h4, h5, h6, put a list in inside of is, and then after that list, say a once. Um, and you don't have to repeat every combination that you're generating there. So it's sort of a shorthand for um, bringing nesting into CSS. You can create these sort of nested-like 
selectors. Um, but they also do some interesting things around specificity. Sorry, what were you going to say? I'll say that I guess that's um, it's just useful in in making your uh, style sheet more readable and uh, easy to maintain if you're not having to longhand write out every single combination of uh, right. things. The other interesting thing you can do with it is you can start to combine selectors. So you can say, I'm only targeting something that matches both the selector outside of is and the selectors inside of is. It has to match all of these things. So you can say, um, match several selectors at once, um, which is interesting. Where does where come into it, if that's what is does? Right. So where comes into it um, because of the way that they handle specificity. So is handles specificity by giving you the entire selector gets the specificity of whatever is highest specificity inside of is. Um, so is can only have one specificity and it's going to be the highest of any selector inside. So if you put an ID inside it, uh, it's going to have the specificity of an ID. Even if you have an ID and a class, uh, two selectors inside is, it's going to have the specificity of the ID. Um, so that sort of defaults to a higher specificity where defaults to a zero specificity, which I think is really interesting, especially for defaults. Um, I want to style an, an audio control uh, or I want to st style an audio element where it has controls. Um, but I don't want to add specificity there. I just want to say where it's called for controls, where it has the controls attribute, um, add this styling to audio. Uh, so a zero specificity option. Otherwise, they work the same way. Okay. So that means with a zero specificity, it means that then as soon as somebody tries to style those controls in the example, um, they're not having to battle against the styles that have already been set. That's right. Yeah. There's another interesting thing inside of both of those where they're supposed to be resilient. Um, right now, if you write a selector list and a browser doesn't understand something in that selector list, it's going to ignore all of the selectors in the list. Um, but if you do that inside of is or where, um, if an unknown selector is used in a list inside of is or where, it should be resilient and the other selectors should still be able to match. Okay, so this is the, that that great property of, of CSS that it is, um, uh, if it doesn't understand something, it just skips over it. Um, right. It, and so it's saying that if there's something it doesn't understand in the in the list, skip over the thing it doesn't understand, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, keep all the others and apply them. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And the fact that we have is and where it strikes me as one of these examples um, of something that sounds like an easy problem. Oh, let's have an is selector. And then somebody somebody says, ah, but what about specificity? Right, exactly. <laughs> How are we going to work that out? Yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing is that it comes out of requests for nesting. Hmm. Uh, so people wanted nested, uh, nested selectors similar to what SAS has. Um, and is and where are in some ways a half step towards that. Uh, they will make the nested selectors easier to implement since we already have a way to what, what they call desugar them. We can desugar them to uh, this basic selector. One of the sort of 
what seems to me like the dustiest corners of HTML and CSS are uh, list items and the the uh, the markers that they have, the sort of bullets or, or what have you. Um, I can remember probably back in front page in the late 90s, uh, <laughs> trying to style, uh, usually with proprietary uh, Microsoft properties um, for Internet Explorer back in the day. Um, but there's some there's some good news on the horizon for lovers of, uh, of, of markers, isn't there? Yeah, there's a marker selector um, that's really great. Uh, we no longer have to sort of remove the markers by saying, uh, how did we remove the markers? I don't even remember uh, changing uh, the list style to list none. Style, list style, none, yeah. Um, and then people would re-add the markers using before uh, pseudo-element. Um, and we don't have to do that anymore. With the marker pseudo-element, we can style it directly. And that styling is a little bit limited, uh, particularly right now. It's going to be expanding out some... Um, but yeah, it's a really nice feature. You can, you can very quickly change the size, the font, the colors, things like that. Can you use generated content in there as well? Uh, yes. I, I don't remember how broad support is for the generated content, but you should be able to. Well, that's, uh, that's good news for fans of lists, I guess. <laughs> um, and there's there's uh, some new selectors now. This is something that I came across recently in a real world um, project, and I started using one of these before I realised actually it wasn't as well supported as I thought because it's that new. Uh, and that's selectors to help um, when when uh, focus is applied to elements. Uh, I think I was using focus within. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's another one, isn't there? There's uh, uh, focus visible. What do they do? So. Um, browsers, when they're handling focus, um, they make some decisions for you uh, based on whether you've, you're clicking with a mouse or whether you're using a keyboard to navigate. Um, and sometimes they show focus and sometimes they don't by default. Uh, and focus visible is a way for us to tie into that logic and say, when the browser thinks focus should be visible, not just when an item has focus, but when an item has focus and the browser thinks focus needs to be visible, uh, then apply these styles. So that's useful for having outline rings uh, on focus, um, but not having them appear when they're not needed. Uh, When you're using a mouse and you don't really need to know, you've clicked on something, you know that you focused it, uh, you don't need the styling there. So Um, Focus visible is really useful for that. Um, Focus within allows you to say, style the entire form when one of its elements has focus, uh, which is very cool and very powerful. I think I was using it on a, a sort of drop-down uh, menu navigation, which is a oh, sure. a, a focus minefield, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, it, uh, focus within was proving very useful there until I then didn't have it and ended up writing a whole load of JavaScript to recreate what was uh, what I'd achieved very simply with CSS before it. So <laughs> yeah, that's the the danger always with new selectors is yeah. how to handle the fallback. Um, one one thing I'm really excited about is uh, this new concept in CSS of aspect ratio. Yeah, are we going to be able to say goodbye to the 
56% top-padding hack. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm so excited to never use that hack again. <laughs> uh, and that I think that's landing in browsers. Uh, I think it's already available in some um, and should be coming to others soon. There seems to be a lot of excitement around that. So Definitely. Well, it's, it's the classic problem, isn't it, of having a, a video uh, or, or something like right. that. You want to show in, in like a 16 by 9 ratio, um, but you want to set the dimensions on it um, but maybe it's a four by three video and <laughs> right. you have to figure out how, how to do it and, and get it to scale um, with the right. Right. And you want it to be responsive. You want it mm. to fill a whole width, but then maintain its ratio. And yeah, the hacks for that aren't great. I think, yeah, I use, I use one often that's like create a grid position generated content with a padding top hack <laughs> and then absolute position the video itself it's mm. it's just a lot um to to get it to work the way you want so uh, and presumably that's going to be much more um performant for the the layout engines to be able to deal with than right yeah and right away it's actually a reason to put uh width and height values back on to uh replaced elements like images in particular, um, so that the browser can, even before CSS loads, the browser can figure out uh, what is the right ratio, the intrinsic ratio, even before the image loads, uh, and use that in the CSS. So um, we used to strip all that out because we wanted percentages instead, and now uh, it's good to put it back in. Yes, I was going to say that uh, when when responsive web design came along, we uh, we stripped all those out. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think we lost something in the process, didn't we, of uh, of giving the browser that important bit of uh, information about how much space to reserve. Yeah, and it ties into what what Jen Simmons has been talking about a lot lately uh, with intrinsic web design. the The idea with responsive design was basically that we sw- we strip out any intrinsic sizing. And we replace it with percentages. Uh, and now the tools that we have, Flex and Grid, are actually built to work with intrinsic sizes. Uh, and it's useful to put those all back in, and we can override them still if we need to. Um, but having those intrinsic sizes is useful, and we want them. Um, grid, uh, you mentioned, you know, I think sort of revolutionized the way we, we think about layout uh, on the web. Um, but it was always sort of tempered a little bit by the fact that we didn't get subgrid at the same time. Um, remind us, if you will, what subgrid is is all about and where are we now with support? Yeah, uh, so grid um, establishes a, a grid parent um, and then all of its children lay out on that grid. Um, and subgrid allows you to nest those and say, okay, I want grandchildren to be part of uh, the grandparent grid. Um, so even if I have a DOM tree that's that's quite a bit nested, I can bubble up elements into the parent grid, um, which is useful. But it's particularly useful when you think about the fact that CSS in general and CSS grid in particular um, does this back and forth of uh, some things, some parts of the layout are determined based on the available width of the container. They're contextual, they're outside in. But then also some parts of it are determined by the sizes of the children, the sizes of the contents. So we have this constant back and forth in CSS 
between whether the context is in control or whether the contents are in control of the layout. Um, and often they're intertwined uh, in very complex ways. Um, and what's most interesting about subgrid is it would allow uh, the contents of grid items to contribute back their sizing to the grandparent grid. Um, and it makes that, that back and forth between contents and uh, context even more explicit. Uh, is that a similar sort of uh, problem that has been faced by um, container queries? Because this, you can't really talk about the future of CSS and, and ask designers and developers what they want in CSS without two minutes in somebody saying, ah, container queries, that's what we want. Is is that a, a similar issue of this sort of pushing and pulling of the of the two different contexts to figure out how much space there is? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, they both are related to that context content question. Um, so subgrid doesn't have to deal with quite the same problems. Subgrid actually works. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is actually able to pass those values both directions um, because you can't change the contents based on the context. Uh, we sort of cut off that loop. And the problem with container queries has always been that there's a potential infinite loop um, where if we allow the content to be styled based on its context explicitly, uh, and you could say, when, when I have less than 500 pixels available, uh, make it 600 pixels wide. Um, you know, you could, you could create this loop uh, where then that size changes the size of the parent that changes whether the container query applies um, and on and on forever. And if you're in the Star Trek universe, the robot explodes. Uh, <laughs> you get that, that infinite loop. Um, so the problem with container queries that we've had to solve is how do we cut off that loop? So container queries uh, is one of the, the sort of CSS features that you're one of the editors for. Is that right? Yeah. So this... Um, the, gen the general concept is like a, a media query where we're looking at the size of a viewport, I guess, and uh, and, and changing CSS based on it. Uh, container queries are to do that, and but looking at the size of a containing element. So I'm a I'm a hero image on a on a page. How much space have I got? Right, right. Or I'm a grid item in a track. How much space do I have in this track? Yeah. So it's it's been quite difficult to to solve it sounds it sounds very difficult to solve are we anywhere near a, a solution for container queries now we are very near a solution now um hooray there's there's still edge cases that we haven't resolved but at this point we're prototyping to find those edge cases um and see if we can solve all of them but the prototypes we've played with so far surprisingly just work in the majority of cases, which has been so fun to see. But it's it's a it's a long history. I mean it's sort of that thing with like we get is because it's halfway to uh nesting. And there's been so much work over the last 10 years. What looks like the CSS working group not getting anywhere on container queries has actually been implementing all of the half steps we would need in order to get here. So um, I came on board to help with this sort of final push, but there's been so much work uh, 
establishing containment um, and all these other concepts that we're now relying on to make container queries possible. It's uh, it's really exciting. Um, is is there any sort of timeline now that we might expect them expect them to uh, get into browsers? Uh, it's hard to say exactly. Not all browsers announce their plans. <laughs> um, some more than others. Um, so it's hard to say, but all of the browsers seem excited about the idea. Um, there's a working prototype in Chrome Canary right now that people can play with. Um, and we're getting feedback through that uh, to make changes. Um, I'm working on the spec. Uh, I imagine dealing with some of the complexity in the edge cases, it will take some time for the spec to really to really solidify. But I think we have a fairly solid proposal overall. And I hope that other browsers are going to start um, picking up on that soon. I know um, containment as a half step is is already not implemented everywhere, but I know Egalia is working to help make sure that there's cross-browser support of containment, um, and that should make it easier then for every browser to step up and do the container queries. Egalia are an interesting case, aren't they? They were involved in a lot of the implementation on Grid initially. Is that, is that right? Yeah, as I understand, they were hired by Bloomberg or somebody that really wanted grids. And Egalia is really interesting. They're a company that uh, contributes to all of the browsers. Uh, they're sort of, sort of an outlier, it seems, um, as uh, the, all the different parties who work on CSS, that it's mostly, as you'd expect, mostly browsers, uh, browser vendors. Um, but uh, yes, they're there as a, a, a sort of more independent uh, developer, which is, yeah, very interesting. A browser vendor vendor. <laughs> Yes, definitely. Um, so um, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is this uh, this sort of uh, a concept that it completely twisted my mind a little bit when I started to think about it. And there's this concept of cascade layers. Um, I think a lot of uh, developers might be familiar with the different aspects of the CSS cascade. So, you know, specificity, sort order, importance, uh, origin, those the main ones things um what are what are cascade layers uh, is this another element of the cascade yeah it is another element uh very much like those um in that so i think often when we talk about the cascade a lot of people mainly think of it as specificity um and other things get tied into that people think of importance as a higher specificity, people think of source order as a lower specificity. Um, and that makes sense because as authors, we spend most of our time in specificity. But these are separate things and um, importance is more directly tied to origins, this idea of where do styles come from? Do they come from uh, authors like us or browsers, the sort of default styles, um, or do they come from users? So three basic origins uh, and those layer in different ways. And then importance is there to flip the order so that there's some balance of control. Um, so we get to override everybody by default, but users and browsers can say, no, this is important. Um, I want control back. Uh, and they they win. For us, importance acts sort of like a specificity layer because normal author styles and important author styles are right next to each other. So mm -hmm. uh, it makes sense that we think of them that way. But I was looking at that and I was thinking, you know, specificity is this attempt to say, 
it's a heuristic. That means it's a, it's a smart guess. Um, and the guess is based on, we think the more narrowly targeted something is, probably the more you care about it. Probably. It's a guess. It's not going to be perfect, um, but it gets us partway. And that is somewhat true. The more narrowly we target something, probably the more we care about it. Um, so more targeted styles override less targeted styles. But it's not always true. Sometimes that falls apart. Uh, and what happens is there's three layers of specificity. There's IDs, there's classes and attributes, and then there's elements themselves. Of those three layers, we control one of them completely. Classes and attributes, we can do anything we want with them. They're reusable. Uh, they're customizable. That's not true of either of the other two layers. So once things get complex, we often end up trying to do all of our cascade management in that single layer uh, and then getting angry, throwing up our hands and adding important. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's not ideal. And I was looking at origins um, because I was going to do some videos teaching the cascade in full. And I thought that's actually pretty clever. We as authors often have styles that come from different places and represent different interests. And what if we could layer them in that same way that we can layer author styles, user styles, and browser styles. Um, but instead, what if they're, uh, here's the design system. Um, here's the styles from components themselves. Here's the broad abstractions. Uh, and sometimes we have broad abstractions that are narrowly targeted. And sometimes we have uh, highly repeatable component utilities or something that, that need to have a lot of weight. What if we could explicitly put those into named layers? Um, Jen Simmons encouraged me to submit that to the working group. Uh, and they were excited about it. And the spec has been moving very quickly. At first, we, go all, we were all worried that we would end up in a Z-index situation. Um, <laughs> Layer yeah. 999,000 <laughs> something. Yeah. Um, and as soon as we started putting together the syntax, we found uh, that that wasn't hard to avoid. Uh, and I've been really excited to see that coming together. I think it's a great syntax that we have. What what form does the syntax take on roughly? I know it's difficult to uh, mouth code, isn't it? But uh... Yeah, well, it's an, it's an at rule uh, called at layer. Um, well, there's, there's actually two approaches. You can also use, we're adding a function to the at import syntax. So you could import a style sheet into a layer, um, say import bootstrap into my framework layer. Uh, but you can also create or add to layers using the at layer rule. And it's just at layer and then the name of the layer. Um, and layers get stacked in the order their first introduced, um, which means that even if you're bringing in style sheets from all over and you don't know what order they're going to load, you can, at the top of your document, say, here are the layers that I'm planning to load, and here's the order that I want them in. And then later, when you're actually adding styles to those layers, they get moved into the original order. So it is also a way of saying, uh, ignore the source order here. I want to be able to load my styles in any order and still control 
how they should override each other. And, and in its own way, having a, a list at the, at the top of um, all your different layers is self-documenting right. as well, because anybody coming to that style sheet can see <laughs> the order of all the layers. And it also means that, say, Bootstrap could go off and use uh, lots of internal layers, um, and you could pull those layers in from Bootstrap. They control how their own rela- layers relate to each other, but you could control how those different layers from Bootstrap relate to your document. So when should Bootstrap win over your layers? And when should your layers win over Bootstrap? Um, And you can start to get very explicit about those things without ever throwing the important flag. (laughs) (laughs) So would those layers from um, an imported uh, style sheet, if that had its own layers, would they all just mix in at the point that that um, uh, that the the style sheet was added by default, unless you've defined somewhere else uh, previously how to layer those, how to order those layers. So still, your your initial uh, layer ordering would take priority. But would uh, would you be able to if you uh, if Bootstrap, for example, had documented their layers would you be able to target a particular one and put that into your layer stack to change it is that how it yes so it's not an encapsulated uh thing that uh, all moves in one go uh you can actually pair it, pull it apart and uh so it would depend we've got several ideas here we've got um we've built in the ability to nest layers this seemed important if you were going to be able to import into a layer you mm-hmm. would have to then say okay i've imported all of bootstrap into a layer called frameworks, but they already had a layer called defaults and a layer called widgets or whatever. Um, so then I want a way to target that sub layer. I want to be able to say frameworks widgets or frameworks defaults and have that be a layer. So we have a syntax for that. Um, we think that all of those would have to be grouped together. You can pull them apart if they're sub layered, but if bootstrap was giving you all those as top-level layers, you could pull them in at the top level, not group them. Um, So we'd have ways of doing both, both grouping or splitting apart. And the fact that you can um, specify a layer that something is imported into, uh, that doesn't require any third-party script to know about layers or have implemented it, presumably. It just pulls all that in at the layer you specify. Right. So that would um, help... Uh, with things like, um, obviously, frameworks like Bootstrap and, and that sort of thing, but also just sort of third-party widgets. You're then trying to fight with specificity to be able to restyle them, uh, and they're, they're using IDs to style things, and you want to change the theme color or something, and you're having to write these at very specific. You could just change the layer order to make sure that your layers uh, would win in the cascade. Yep, that's exactly right. I mean, the the... The big danger here is just that um, backwards compatibility, it's going to be a rough transition in some sense. Uh, But I can't imagine any way of updating the cascade or adding this sort of explicit rules to the cascade without some backwards compatibility issues. But older browsers are going to ignore anything inside a layer rule. So that's dangerous. This is going to take some time. I think we'll get it implemented fairly quickly, 
but then it will still take some time before people are comfortable using it. Um, and there are ways to polyfill it, particularly using is. The is selector gives us a, a weird little polyfill um, that uh, we'll be able to write. So people will be able to use the syntax and polyfill it, generate uh, backwards compatible CSS, but um, there will be some issues there in the transition. Presumably only backwards compatible uh, to browsers that support is. That's right. Yep. So it gets us a little farther, but not. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, it's not going to get us IE 11. <laughs> no, <laughs> but then it's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so um, this is, uh, I guess it's, it, it, it feels like a, a, a scoping mechanism, but it's not a scoping mechanism as it layers. It's, um, it's different because a scope is a is a separate thing. There's actually a separate CSS feature that there's a, a draft in in um, in the works for. Is that right? Yeah, that's another one that I'm working on. Uh, and they do have, I mean, I would say as with anything in the cascade, they have sort of an overlap. Um, layers overlap with specificity, and uh, both of them overlap with scope. Um, and the idea with scope, what I've focused on is the way that a lot of the JavaScript tools do it right now. Uh, they create a scope by generating a unique class name, and then they append that class name to everything they consider within a scope. Um, so if you're using view, that's everything within a view component template or something. Um, and then they... So they apply it to every element in the HTML that's in scope, and then they also apply it to every single one of your selectors. Uh, and it takes a lot of JavaScript managing and writing these uh, weird strings of unique IDs. Uh, but we've taken the same idea of being able to declare a scope using an at scope rule that declares not just the root of the scope, um, so not just scope this component, but also the lower boundaries of that scope. So uh, Nicole Sullivan has called this donut scope, the idea that some components have other components inside of them, and the scope only goes from the outer boundaries to that inner hole, and then other things can go in that hole. Uh, so we have this at scope rule that allows you to declare both a root selector and then say two and declare a uh, any number of lower boundaries. So in a tab component, it might be scope tabs to tab contents or something. So you're not styling inside of the content of any one tab. Uh, you're only scoping between the outer box and that inner box that's going to hold all the contents. So it's like saying um, at this point, stop the inheritance is not exactly because it doesn't it doesn't actually cut off inheritance um the way i'm proposing it uh what it does is it just narrows the range of targeted elements from a selector so any any selector you put inside of the scope rule will only target something that is between the root and the lower boundaries um, and it's just a targeting issue there. There is one other part of it um, that we're still discussing exactly how it should work, where the way I've proposed it um, 
if we have two scopes, let's say, let's call them theme scopes. Let's say we have a, a light theme and a dark theme and we nest them. Uh, given both of those scopes, both of them have a link style. Both of those link styles have the same specificity. They're both in scopes. We want the closer scope to win in that case. We want uh, whichever, if, I'm, if I've got nested light and dark and light and dark, we want the closest ancestor to win. Um, so we do have that concept of proximity of a scope. That's, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Um, are there any, um, I mean, so scopes um, are the scope of the, the targeting of, of a selector. Um, and I mentioned this uh, idea of inheritance. Is there anything in CSS that uh, might be coming or might exist already that, we, that I don't know about that will um, stop inheritance in a nice way without doing a massive reset? Well, really, the yeah, the the way to stop inheritance is with some sort of reset. Um, uh, layers would actually give you an interesting way to think about that because we have this idea of there's already a revert rule. We have an all property, which sets all properties, every every CSS property. And we have a revert rule, which reverts to the previous origin. So you can say all revert, and that would stop inheritance. That would revert all of the properties back to their browser default. Um, so you can do that already. And now we're adding revert layer, which would allow you to say, okay, I'm in the components layer, revert all of the properties back to the defaults layer. So I don't want to go the whole way back to the browser defaults. I want to go back to my own defaults. Um, so we will be adding something like that in layers uh, that could work that way. But a little bit in order to stop inheritance, in order to stop things from getting in, uh, I think that belongs more in the realm of shadow DOM encapsulation, that idea of drawing hard boundaries in the DOM itself. Uh, and I've tried to step away from that with my scope proposal. The Shadow DOM already is handling that. Um, I want to do something more CSS-focused, more... Um, we can have multiple overlapping scopes that target different selectors, and they're not drawn into the DOM as hard lines. <laughs> leave, leave, it to, leave it to someone else, to Shadow mm -hmm. DOM. Um, <laughs> what, uh, what stage are these, um, these drafts at, the, the cascade layers and scope? How, how far along the process are they? Uh, so Cascade Layers, um, there's a few people who want to reconsider the naming of it, but otherwise the spec is fairly stable uh, and there's no other current issues open. Um, so hopefully that will be moving to candidate recommendations soon. Uh, I expect browsers will at least start implementing it later this year. Um, that one is the farthest along because for browsers it's very much the easiest to conceptualize and implement, um, even if it may take some time for authors to make the transition. Uh, so that one is very far along and coming quickly. Um, container queries are next in line, I would say. Uh, since we already have a working prototype, that's going to help a lot. Um, but actually defining all of the spec edge cases. I mean, specs these days are in large part, how should this fail? Uh, that's what we got wrong with CSS1. 
um, we didn't define the failures. Uh, and so browsers failed differently, and that was unexpected and hard to work with. So specs are a lot about dealing with those failures, and uh, container queries are going to have a lot of those edge cases that we have to think through and deal with um, because we're trying to solve weird looping problems. Uh, so uh, it's hard to say on that one because uh, we both have a working prototype ahead of any of the others, um, but also... Uh, it's going to be a little harder to spec out. So I think there's a lot of interest. I think people will start implementing uh, soon, but I don't know exactly how long it will take. Scope is the farthest behind of those three. Um, we have a rough proposal. We have a lot of interest in it, uh, but very little agreement on all the details yet. So that one is still very much in flux. Uh, and we'll see where it goes. Uh, I think it's amazing that the uh, the level of thought and work that the CSS working group are, are putting into new fe uh, features and the future of CSS. It's all very exciting, and I'm sure we're all very grateful for the uh, the clever folks like yourself who uh, who spend time thinking about it so that we get new tools to use. Um, so I've been learning all about what's coming down the pike in uh, CSS. Uh, what have you been learning about lately, Miriam? Well, a big part of what I've been learning is how to work on the spec process. <laughs> it is, uh, it's really, it's really interesting. And I mean, the, the working group has been very welcoming. Um, and a lot of people there have helped me find my feet and, uh, and learn how to think about these things from a spec perspective. Um, but I have a long ways to go on that and learning exactly how to write the spec language and all of that. That's, um, that's a, a lot in my mind. I, I mean, meanwhile, I'm still playing with uh, grids and playing with uh, custom properties. Um, and while I learned both of those, I don't know, five years ago, um, there's always something new there to discover and play with. So I feel like I'm never done learning them. <laughs> Yeah, I I feel very much the same. <laughs> I feel like I'm I'm always a beginner <laughs> when it comes yeah. to uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of CSS. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Miriam, you can find her on Twitter, where she's at Miri Suzanne, and her personal website is miriamsuzanne.com. Thanks for joining us today, Miriam. Do you have any parting words? Ah, oh, thank you. It's uh, great chatting with you. This is smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at SmashingMag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. <laughs> <laughs>